0: Well, it's a warm welcome to Biz News Radio, and uh, this is our weekly show called Rational Radio. As always, we kick off the program with David Shapiro. We've got lots to talk about, Dave, uh, not least Tesla. I'm not sure if you've been following the <laughs> the incredible performance of that share price.
1: Me, and how I have. <laughs> Are you a
0: it's shareholder? Tell us
1: nuts, honestly. no.
0: We, no, we were, no. we were, but yeah. we got out at about $300 and it got to nearly $1,000 no, no. last week. Wow.
1: Because mm. you're probably rational. And, <laughs> and well, this is called <laughs> rational radio. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why, because you looked at the fundamentals and uh, you looked at his history and you looked at uh, other things that uh, potential investors would look at, and you said, oh, well, I've had enough. And to try and explain the move from when you sold it to where it is is very, very difficult. And it's much more of an emotional show than than anything else. And I, I try and explain it in a difficult, different way. I'm saying it's like owning the shares of Man United or, you know, West Ham. Uh, you mm, wa- you want to be Mr. a… Mr. <laughs> Shapiro, that
0: is a low blow.
1: No, don't worry. Don't worry, I'm an Arsenal supporter and you know where we are, but you want to own the shares because you want to identify with with, with a club or you want to identify with a movement and and I think to a large extent, uh, um, this is very fashionable at the moment, this ESG, environmental issues and I think it's um, it's a vote in favour of what he does and what he represents, more so than the... Uh, I think the, the fundamental benefits you're going to get from owning the shares. So how do you explain it? I have no idea.
0: You described it really well. The FT uh, weekend, which is, which is amazing, actually, Dave. I get that. Yeah. With, I don't know what subscription, I, uh, maybe the business day or the Sunday Times subscription, but it arrives every Sunday, every Saturday, every Sunday, every yes. Sunday. And it had a lot of uh, coverage yeah. this week about Tesla. Elon yeah. Musk didn't mention much about his South African roots, but it did say exactly what you you are um, talking about there, that it's a millennial share. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, he was talking about, one of the columnists was uh, had interviewed a lady from Germany who was flying over to interview Elon Musk, but she's on YouTube or uh, something of that nature, and, and she's of an age where uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fan club rather than, an investment decision so spot on there but what should investors do just sit on the sidelines and don't
1: don't get (laughs) suckered in do yeah exactly do not get suckered into this as much as you like the product uh, and I'm not saying don't buy the product because I think in Europe, you know, it 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 will be take, People will love, to, you know, want to be identified. They will drive Teslas. They do it in Australia. They do it in Scandinavia. They do it in many areas, you know, mainly probably uh, metropolises where you don't have to drive into the country. But Alec, another one is like the veganism. The Impossible foods or Beyond Meat. Uh, have you tasted
0: a, one of those Beyond Meat burgers? They are I, unbelievable, David. Yeah, I,
1: have you I, tasted I, one? I have, I have. And and I must admit that uh, you know once you've got the tomato sauce on and the mayonnaise and everything, you don't know the difference. You don't, no, you don't know the difference. Only later in the day, your stomach says, "Hey, that wasn't meat." You know, I don't know what came down that channel, but it wasn't meat.
2: <laughs> well
1: it's, it's, I, I enjoy yeah. them. I promise you i I, I could easily uh, you know switch a, a normal burger for a beyond meat burger i found no no difference and i i enjoyed the you know enjoyed the taste as long as my chips fries are not uh, veganism. I want the proper potato.
0: <laughs> well, I think vegans don't mind if, if they have potatoes. But it's an no, interesting, no. interesting point all around is that there mm. is this, this these different mm. trends, these big trends. So yeah. that's what's making Elon Musk's yeah. share uh, rocket. Um, unless you change your mind about investing, probably yeah. best to sit on the sidelines. But can we sit on the sidelines on the coronavirus?
1: No. No. Um I think that you 've got to be very careful i 'm surprised at how well markets are holding up and i 'm talking specifically about the u s market and um, you know maybe there is a message there it hasn 't hit America. You know, there've been no deaths. They're very fearful of what the consequences might be. It hasn't hit Europe in any big way, but I think down the line this is going to work its way through the global economy, and there are going to be companies that you know take strain. Uh, We don't know how it's going to unfold, but but I think I'm not saying get bearish. I'm not saying sell out and run, you know, uh, run away from the markets. But what I am saying, just be careful. Don't, don't ignore it and don't brush it aside and don't think that there's going to be no, uh, you know, no consequences. So, yeah, I'm, I, I'm with you on this one. I'm listening. Be careful.
0: We had a, a wonderful interview with Gary and Andy Cronier, who are yes. South African teachers from Durban, who are in the middle of China at the moment. And it, it was extremely enlightening to hear what it's like on the ground there. But the mm-hmm. question, listening to that, if the streets are deserted in all the major cities—Shanghai, mm. Beijing, Wuhan, obviously—and and other places, what does this do to Richmond? Richmond relies mm. heavily on China for mm. its uh, for a percentage of its revenues. Yeah. Is this starting to bother you? Because the Richmond yep. share price doesn't doesn't suggest anything.
1: No. I, it maybe it'll be temporary, and maybe they're able to. Uh, overcome it or handle it. You know, it might only be one month sales, two month sales, um, and and we've seen it in other luxury companies like LVMH, which has bounced back, caring uh, even Estee Lauder and L'Oreal. You know, who rely heavily on the Asian markets, um, they seem to have brushed aside. And even management has given comfort. But I would like to see the numbers. You know. Uh, Um, before getting carried away and, and, and saying, oh, this, let's take advantage of these lower prices. It's going to have consequences. Alec, we've seen it. We've seen it with load shedding. Do you know, do you know what I mean? When we've had a week of load shedding or a couple of weeks of load shedding, you know the consequences that they have on restaurants. Uh, on, on shops, you know, in your, in your areas and that, you know, how it's hurt them. We saw it in Anglo-Platz's numbers. We saw, um, how it hurt production. So it gives you an idea of what happens when you close down an economy. In our case, it's only for a few hours a day. Here, it's three, four, five weeks, you know, and it could be even longer. We don't know. So I think you've got to be careful and the supply chains are going to be hurt. Um, it's coming through in commodity prices. The commodity markets have been hurt dramatically, with oil leading the way in our know, way through it. There's been a slight, I think, tick up now in commodity prices today, but it's uh, it's it, it. You know, we're going to, we're going to suffer uh, a couple of weeks of uh, of of the close down. So I think don't be just just be careful.
0: Mm, just uncertain. exercise
1: caution. Yeah, yeah, and- it's an uncertainty. Yeah.
0: Uh, perversely, there are businesses in South Africa who are benefiting quite significantly. I've got a friend who manufactures, and he says that the supplier or the retailers are suddenly his friends again. uh, They're suddenly Uh, coming up to find out, can he supply, because they cannot get their supplies from China anymore. But talking about that and talking about uncertainty, State of the Nation address comes later this week. What are you hoping that Sir Ramaphosa, the president, says?
1: Oh, you know, we're all hoping for some dramatic change in his outlook and structural reform. Um, we're not going to get it. I don't think there's going to be anything that's uh, going to be groundbreaking in, in, in respect of, uh, you know, of what the market's expecting. Uh, are we going to hear about this 250 billion rand? You know, maybe he's going to address it. Alec, there's a lot of debate around this, and there's a lot of anger around it. What, what um,
0: 250 billion, rent, David?
1: You know, this is the, sorry, this is the 250 billion that Kasatu wants to take from the PRC, which is pension fund money. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of debates about whether legally they can take it. And what the consequences will be if they do take it, you know, for pensioners. And and what it really means if the, com- if the country is getting so desperate that you've got to dig into pensioners' money in order to save uh, uh, So, But surely this, it's, this it's theft.
0: You can't just go it's and steal theft. money I, from I, I, No,
1: I'm with you. I, to me, it's pure theft. And it's really robbing piggy banks. It's like taking your, your little grandchild or your daughter's piggy bank and breaking it open in order to, I don't know what, you know, to, to, to buy some cigarettes or booze or something like that. I, the, the, the worry is, is, is what this means. I know this is desperate measures and the, the argument in favor of doing it is that desperate you know, desperate times need desperate measures, but, That doesn't allow you to take pensioners money at whatever cost, you know, so it's a huge debate, but it also identifies and, and, and shows you the kind of trouble that we're in at the moment. And the only way we can get out, I think, is to change our mindset and, uh, and, and move, uh, with, you know, move to Move with big structural reforms. We have to face the consequences. You know, we have to lay off people. We have to, we have to um, understand. You know, we have to get Eskom right, but we're not going to do it by bowing down to the to the unions and continuing along this uh, de- developmental policy that the government has. So that's what we're hoping for. We're not going to get it.
0: David so. Shapiro. <laughs> with a little bit of uh, brightness on this Monday morning. But, uh, well, Dave, you know, who knows? Uh, I, I urge you to listen to our next interview, though. It is with somebody who's got a plan for South African Airways. His name is Grant Beck. He is the chairman of the South African Airways Pilots Association. And if you could think of anybody who's taking strain at the moment, it would be the pilots Cutting roots, uh, chopping the, the, the whole situation that, that uh, SAA is in. And it seems as though the politicians are talking with one voice or some politicians saying close it down. Other politicians saying don't you dare even uh, take away the, the roots. It is a mess. But uh, Grant has got some pretty good insights. Uh, let's have a listen. I spoke to him earlier this morning. Well, Grant Back joins us now. He's the chairman of the SAA Pilots Association. Grant, how many members do you guys have?
3: Uh, we have 620 pilots uh, that are actively on our seniority list at SAA uh, and about 540 pilots that are actively flying. We know we're very fortunate in the fact that we've got such a high uh, membership rate at, at uh, South African Airways Pilot Association, or as it's known as SAPA. We uh, currently have a membership rate of uh, about 99%. Uh, I think we have about three members that uh, are not participant and uh, members of SARPA at this point. Um, and in fact, I think two of those pilots are in management.
0: How long does it take to get a license? How many years do you have to train?
3: Alec, like, well, I mean, I'm thinking back to when I first started training, which was actually in the 80s. Um, and uh, I was actually did it through the UCT Flying Club. Uh, and of course, you know, people can do it one of two ways. You can either do it privately, uh, will you. Pretty much uh, get your private pilot license, work your way up, getting your commercial and instructors rating. Uh, and that took me until I really got my first airline job around about six to seven years. Um, the other avenue that's available and uh, certainly was used uh, quite a bit in the past uh, was to go through the military. Um, and uh, generally the guys were in the military for about 10 years uh, and then uh, had to get the commercial pilot's license uh, outside of the military and then join the airlines.
0: And So that's, that's a long road to become a pilot for South African airline, uh, Airways and uh, 540 members. Clearly, they must be shaking their heads at what's going on at the moment. And I, I, I refer specifically to the mixed messages. The business, business rescue practice, uh, practitioners are telling us that they're closing down routes uh, the politicians, some of them are saying, close down the whole airline. Think of Gwedi Montash or Tita Mbowene, two members of the cabinet. And yet the president says he doesn't think that's a good idea. And the minister of tourism says, why are you closing down routes when we need more tourism? Reopen them. The confusion has got us as the public not really knowing what's going on. How are your mem- what are your members making of this?
3: Alec, that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think right now there, there is a lot of uh, information, misinformation. Uh, I think there's a lot of agendas at play here. It's just simply not a case of business risk. You step in and save the airline. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's political agendas at, at play here. And I think from one faction to the next, uh, you know, whether the airline stays around or, or it doesn't. Um, I, I think to answer your question, though, specifically in how it's affecting the pilots, uh, as it would affect any one of our employees at SAA, um from the ground staff, cabin crew, uh, everyone is affected. Um, and that's obviously with the uncertainty of, of where we're going. Now, you know, if the business rescue looks at what he has available at the moment, he's got a finite amount of uh, disposable income or, shall I say, uh, working capital that he can work with. Uh, and until he gets a bigger and firm commitment from government, it's very hard to determine what the new SAA is going to look like. So, you know, there's, there seems to be two plans uh, that, that, that are, that are um, in play at the moment. There's the kind of the uh, day-to-day how do we survive plan and then, of course, waiting for the budget speech and how much money is going to be allocated by government uh, as to determining the medium-to-long-term plan for SAA. I mean, it's encouraging to hear that the shareholder and uh, certainly the president is uh, supporting SAA survival. Um, Um, As I've advocated in the press uh, quite a bit in the past, I do believe that South African Airways is worth saving. And I think with the right skills on board, uh, with the right shareholder support and obviously public support uh, and most importantly skills, uh, SAA can turn around. And I do think that from the general uh, psyche in South Africa to making an SAE successful and turning it around like South African Airways will have a significant impact uh, on confidence within the market. Uh, and even from the international market if one considers uh, the comments that were said in divorce uh, recently uh, by Quest uh, regarding SAA and, and uh, you know, our general economy for that matter.
0: Yeah, indeed. But uh, the problem here is the public aren't going to fly if they are nervous that their tickets might at some point in time be worthless. The, the communication seems to leave a bit to be desired, to be desired on that front. Alec,
3: 100 percent. I think uh, the airline uh, could do wonders uh, for for itself and for revenue and ticket sales if they were to come out and to reassure the public and say, you know, if you buy a ticket on South African Airways, it is currently in business rescue, uh, which obviously uh, has certain um, protections built into it. Uh, And I think, you know, to reassure the public saying if you buy a ticket today, whether it's flown today or flown in six months, Uh, that you are guaranteed to get that money back if the airline was to be wound down at some future date. Um, Why that hasn't happened yet, I cannot say. Uh, I do think that um, a a better public relations um, campaign would would certainly uh, endear the public uh, to South African Airways. And uh, I hope that in the very near future that this is addressed either by the business rescue practitioner uh, or by our current management Uh, I think it would go a long way in reassuring public and increasing ticket sales, which, of course, is paramount for our survival.
0: Grant, you've been watching the decline of the airline over many years. Uh, You you have been outspoken uh, as the chairman of the SAA Pilots Association. In fact, I think you even threatened to go on strike a couple of times. Why did no one listen, in your opinion?
3: Well, you're 100% correct, uh, Alec, we did. I mean, I think it's the first time uh, that a a union was willing to go on strike uh, for better management. Uh, I think most times it's uh, for terms and conditions or better salaries. I think we are incredibly frustrated because we can see the potential that South African Airways has. And we know that with the right skills on board, uh, SAA can be turned around. I think that... um, there's as i said earlier when we spoke about um, the kind of political football that saa is at the moment going from one you know part of the field to the other part of the field um that there are many kind of people that are participating in saa's you know direction so in, it's kind of going in one direction and it gets changed to another direction uh and i think that of course uh is, is crippling any chance of, of, of a successful turnaround we need to really be given an opportunity to be given the ceo that has the skills on board um and that he has the authority to appoint uh, people into the senior executive positions that have the necessary skills i mean bear in mind alec that you know airlines have roughly two to three percent margins um, it's a very, very specific business, and having the best that we can possibly get on board to, to drive uh, the, the plan that, that, of course, there's been quite a few lately, uh, as, as the public know, but to drive the plan through to get the shareholder support that we need, um, SAA can definitely be turned around. I mean, a case in point, if you don't mind me saying quickly, is just in New Zealand. I mean, 10 to 15 years ago, uh, they were also in a similar situation as South African Airways finds itself in today. They are as geographically challenged as we are. They brought in the best that they could uh, they could find in the market, um, and they've turned the airline around, and they're definitely operating within the des- top five um, airlines uh, in the world. And in fact, when I meet my counterpart at uh, Star Alliance conferences um, at various destinations around the world, um, I think every time Air New Zealand gives a report back, it's to declare their profits. So... Um, you know, I think with, with, with the right team on board, uh, SAA could cert- certainly emulate what Air New Zealand has done.
0: So the right skills. Who, who would you appoint as CEO? Is there anyone in South Africa or elsewhere who would be able to do the Air New Zealand trick?
3: You know, if we look at the aviation sector in South Africa compared to the rest of the world, I mean, if you look at the United States, North America, Canada, Europe, the East, I mean, there's a lot of airlines there, and there's a, lot of, uh, there's a huge resource pool that you could choose from. In South Africa, we have a very limited amount of uh, airline professionals that we can choose for. And as much as I'm pro-South Africa, and I think that we have a lot of talent within South African Airways, that's been sadly disempowered, and I think you know empowering those individuals will go a long way um, to bring SAA back from the brink that it currently is in. But I do think that we're probably going to have to look further afield to find the people with the necessary skills um, and understanding uh, what is required in running an airline. And in particular, if you were to look at their track record of turnaround strategies that they might have used uh, and turned airlines around, um, around the world. Well, so I do, think, mm. I do think we're probably going to have to look at going offshore. Um, but, you know, with the right leadership, um, you, can, uh, you can choose um, you know, the right management team uh, from within the company, uh, and I think that would definitely go a long way uh, to getting us back on track.
0: What's the process then? If the business rescue practitioners have their way and the airline is slimmed down to make it sustainable, presumably there'd be a lot of pilots that have to try and find jobs somewhere else. What's the market like for them?
3: Well, I think when it comes to timing, uh, it, it, right now, uh, barring the coronavirus, which, of course, has now seriously impacted aviation uh, in China, um, I think uh, Cathay Pacific has just had 27,000 people that are going to be laid off without salary. And I know there's about 400 other pilots that are flying um, at other carriers uh, in the east that have also uh, been uh, put on uh, temporary uh, unpaid leave. Um, but if you look at the Middle East, for example, um, there is a huge demand uh, for for pilots, and right now the pilots that are currently there, and there are many South Africans, have certainly set the bar uh, pretty high when it comes to uh, the level of of their skills, and that's thanks to a terrific training section that we have at SAA. So, I I think, you know, we have to wait and see what the numbers are going to dictate uh, as to what the numbers are going to be as far as retrenchments or getting or downsizing the workforce at SAA, and I think If the BRP um, and the team Alvarez that that are currently working with the BRP uh, present us with figures that make sense, well, then obviously I think as labor we need to buy into the plan. But currently that plan is not being shared and the data that we urgently requested has not been shared. And I think to make SAA work, you've got to have the buy-in of labor. And if labor doesn't have access to that data and aren't part of making a plan, uh, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. But to answer your question right now, yes, there is work out there for pilots, uh, South African Airways pilots or South African pilots um, are, are seen uh, as, uh, you know, pretty much top of their game uh, on, on a global scale. Um, but, unfortunately it, it does mean relocating. And I think um, a lot of the guys that fly at SAA certainly want to remain in South Africa. And I think we all want to see South African Airways survive and we want to see South Africa survive. So I think um, – The more we can participate in the planning, I mean, uh, if your objective is getting from A plus B to C, uh, we might find or be able to be uh, participant in finding other ways to get to C, which retains jobs. But that would mean involving the immense amount of skills that we have within our pilot body.
0: So these business practice uh, or rescue practitioners, what's the process now? At the end of the month, they do put together a plan. Do they then appoint a CEO? Because you can't not have a CEO of of a company
3: look, that's certainly something that we've been calling for. In fact, um, you know, we had a vote of no confidence uh, a couple of months ago in the current uh, top six positions at the at SAA. Uh, but that was before we went into business rescue. And in fact, it was one of the demands we had on the table that you mentioned earlier, which we were willing to take industrial action over. Obviously, being within business rescue now, that's semi-backburned. But, um, you know, we've made it clear to the business rescue practitioner that we we that not we as an as association, but, you know, of the 82 percent of the pilots that were participated in the vote of no confidence, uh, well in excess of 80 percent were in favor of the vote of no confidence in those individuals. So we have made it clear not only to our current management, to the BRP, but also to, to the Department of Public Enterprises to say we think we need to get a hands-on individual um, right now, and even if it's from within South Africa's borders, to stabilize SAA and somebody who's got an understanding of running a company of that magnitude. Um, and with you know, due respect to our current acting CEO, we just don't feel um, that you know, that person has uh, what's required. Uh, it's, it's not a personal uh, thing against anybody. It's just let's get the best people we have available to stabilize the company. Long term, I mean, or shall I say even short to medium term, it's also going to be very difficult finding someone, you know, who's going to come to SAA uh, willingly and and be part of a turnaround strategy. So we're kind of between a rock and a hard place. We're working with uh, Alvarez, who have been appointed um, by – Uh, the lenders to come in and and facilitate the turnaround. We think that we've got a lot of value within the pilot body and in the airline itself that that can certainly assist. But we need more than anything right now. We need proper leadership. People or a person that is going to be able to get and rally the troops so that they will follow that person into battle, excuse the pun. But honestly, to get the best out of our labor, we're going to need someone um, who's who's in the know and gets the buy-in uh, because of their experience in the industry. So if that means going offshore, then so be it. Um, they should actively be looking for someone uh, who can bring those skills to the table. We don't have the time right now to appoint someone who doesn't understand the industry. They have to have at least 10, 15 years' experience in the aviation sector. Well,
0: that was Grant Back, the uh, head of South African Airways Pilot Association. Fascinating insights. He says, let's, let's have a CEO and let's have one soon. Bernard Hotz joins us now. He's a partner at uh, the major legal firm Worksmans, and uh, he's been involved in a long-going saga uh, between the National Prosecuting Authority and three members, uh, former senior members of South African Revenue Services: Ivan Pele, Andres Jans van Rensburg, uh, and Johan van Lochrenberg. Now, Johan van Lochrenberg has uh, spent a lot of time was spoken with us many times and we followed his story. He's had a couple of books already that, that we've spoken about, but Mr. Hots, just to uh, give us an update um, in the last few days, we've seen that the national prosecuting authority is actually no longer going to be prosecuting these three, Johan, Ivan and and Andres. Um, How long has this saga been going on for?
4: Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, Well, firstly, It's been going on for far too long, but, you know, it's very encouraging, and my clients welcome the decision taken by the NDPP and her team. Um, The decision was taken, obviously, after they considered the detailed representations, written representations that were submitted to their office, um, which once – they had the opportunity of perusing it, and this was this was all evidence. This was, this was black and white evidence as to why the case should never ever have come out of the starting blocks at the outset. They unanimously resolved that uh, the charges should be withdrawn. Um, fortunately, as I say. Um, the, the new NDPP is hopefully taking the NPA in a direction to restore the office to the strength that I would hope all law-abiding citizens in South Africa are yearning for.
0: What does it tell us about the new National Prosecuting Authority head, Shamila Batoi?
4: Look, you know, th- there's no secret that this case um, is anything but what it appears to be on the surface. My clients were the victims of state capture, This is pure politicking. And, you know, it's not appropriate to go into all the the details uh, in this forum. Suffice it to state that if one looked at the case as presented by the state, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. There's there's say-so, but no evidence to back it up. There's lists of witnesses that were going to say ABCD, yet when one looks at the docket, not a smidgen of evidence. What we did is when the new NDPP came in, we availed ourselves of the opportunity to put forward thorough representations which dealt with each and every aspect and which illustrated that the docket was a, I'm, I'm looking for the polite terminology, but in legal parlance, one can simply say it ought never to have risen to a charge at the outset. And Clearly, the team unanimously agreed with that.
0: But it's still being used by the public protector.
4: Well, that begs the question as to why it started in the first place. And as I mentioned earlier, there's no there's no doubt that my clients were the victims of state capture. Um, one can see clearly. You only need to read the Nugent report to see what happened to SARS, and to see that you all you have in my clients were loyal dedicated, intelligent civil servants who were doing their job in the best interest of the country. That didn't, unfortunately, gel with the agenda of those who were behind the decimation of SARS. Uh,
0: That's all very well, but your clients have now got big legal bills to pay presumably because they don't work for SARS anymore, for the state anymore. They've got to find that money in their own pockets. What happens in a case like this? Do they, can they sue the state? Can they get at least some of the money back?
4: Well, you know, I mean, legally, obviously, um, I haven't had the opportunity to just discuss this yet with my clients. But yes, indeed, if, 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 if there has been a malicious prosecution, Um, If people have behaved unlawfully, and we've alleged, my clients have alleged this, they've alleged this in court papers already, there's a court application calling into question the acts of certain NPA employees, of certain DPCI investigators, that's all in court documents, So, so yes, indeed, the law allows one to, to, to uh, seek justice, but as I say, I think it's a little bit premature to go down that path at this moment in time. I think my clients at this stage are really heaving a huge sigh of relief because justice, at long last, has prevailed, notwithstanding the traumatic path that each and every one of them and their families has had to navigate.
0: I'm sure you saw the comment from uh, Judge Johann Krichler from Freedom Under Law, I just got to read it because it's a classic. He says that there's a, a, it would only be a grave disappointment for certain resourceful politicians, one-eyed conspiracy theorists, media gossips, and other useful idiots of the state capture brigade. He's got a, he's got a way with words. I'm sure, uh, well, Indeed. I, presumably, you would agree with Judge Crickler.
4: I, I can only but uh, agree with Judge Crickler.
0: So what what happens now? Because you presumably there there was some uh, basis on which this case uh, was stated. We see that Julius Malema, the head of the EFF, has said this should actually go to court and it should be presided on by a judge. Mm,
4: I, I find that rather regrettable for a number of issues, but mainly for the following. It is clear that the Criminal Procedure Act affords an accused, an opportunity to submit representations to the NDPP's office to reconsider whether or not the case should proceed. And in fact, um, Mr. Malema has availed himself of this very opportunity on at least two occasions that uh, have been well publicized, the present case involving the alleged assault as well as the alleged firing of a firearm. So it. One needs to look at the law, and in this instance, the law says an accused person is entitled to approach the NDPP's office and make representations. Why on earth should the court's time be wasted when it is clear that there was not a smidgen, of evidence put forward in the docket, anybody with a legal mind who actually analyzes that docket properly as a lawyer, anybody who has regard to the legal representations which have been put forward, come to the unanimous resolution that the NDPP's office came to. Why should a court be burdened with such a matter that should never have started at the outset? And that's precisely what Mr. Malema is seeking to do in relation to the representations that he himself has put forward to the NDPP's office.
0: Bernard Hotz is a senior partner at Worksmans. We're going to stay with the law uh, with our next interview, which is with Rene Becker. Uh, It's all to do with the insolvency issues, liquidations. My, My late colleague Barry Sargent was writing about this stuff 20 years ago, and it appears at last that it's now being surfaced. The president has uh, we have got the special investigations unit to have a look into the master's offices, 15 of them around the country, close them down temporarily so that at last this festering sore can be lanced and sorted out. Well, it's so interesting uh, here in South Africa with our load shedding. It affects every facet of our lives, even <coughs> interviews on, on uh, rational radio. But Rene Becker joins us <laughs> now. Hi, Rene. Nice to, to have you on the program. She's the chief operating officer of the South African. Restructuring and Insolvency Practitioners Association. Rene, the whole story that you're going to unpack for us in just a moment to, is to do with the masters' uh, um, offices around the country. Now, my, my late uh, colleague Barry Sargent, used to write a lot about this. He was an advocate, yes. a trained advocate, yes. and he he said that the industry was in uh, in a very dire state, and it now appears as though. The officials or the authorities have finally uh, opened their eyes to this, and no less than the president has put the special investigations unit into uh, finding out what's going on and how to fix it. Just unpack for us, if you would, those of us who are not in the legal profession or in in the liquidations industry, what's going on?
2: Okay. First of all, good afternoon, Alec, and thank you so much for the uh, invitation. Well, yes, we woke up. Uh, last week, Monday, to see that the President, as you've mentioned, has authorized this investigation. And um, it looks as if there are three facets, corruption, fraud, and maladministration. From our view, we welcome that, specifically the maladministration, in the sense that, you know, there are 50 master's offices countrywide. And if I can take a quick step back, the master's office has a huge responsibility. You know, you have the insolvency division, the deceased estate division, trusts, curatorships, and then the guardians fund. So it it would appear as if it's the whole scope. So it is a um, a mammoth task. From our perspective, um, our members are the insolvency practitioners and they have to work with the master on a daily basis. And, you know, I hear... um, uh, you know uh, the the information that I receive from um, what is going out there in every office is very challenging, and um, so we we are we um, are very excited that this is being looked into.
0: Very challenging, in what way?
2: Very challenging. Okay. Well, um, as I said before, there are 15 master's offices, and it and from the insolvency perspective, it would appear as if every master has has decided on an on their own course of doing things. Um, just to get a bit technical, the post of Chief Master, we have an acting Chief Master at the, mo- at the moment, Ms. note, But if you go back, the Judicial Matters Amendment Act of 2005 brought, introduced the post of Chief Master but if you look at the uh, Amendment Act, Act, it only makes provision for the administration of the Seized Estates Act. So masters, in doing the insolvency, on the insolvency side, um, it, it would appear that they do, not, you know, they do not acknowledge the authority of the chief master and therefore... Um, we have the situation that each office has its own practice. For instance, just random examples, um, all the offices um, have uh, have the practice of not sending um, notice to creditors for a second meeting by registered post. But, for example, the Master's office in Durban requests that. Now, um, unfortunately, our post office has also huge challenges so you know for for insolvency practitioners to send out um circulars by registered post isn't isn't uh, an added, uh, an onus on them and, and one which, uh, from our perspective, we submit is, is completely not in line with the Insolvency Act, read with the Companies Act. So, yeah, you know, small things.
0: Yeah, and, and lots of detail. But what are they likely to find? What is the Special Investigations Unit likely to find? Corruption? Graft? Stealing?
2: <sighs> oh, that's, that is a good question. I, I'm afraid I would not be in a position to even start speculating. I have not, you know, I have not seen the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the uh, investigation and I've subsequently read in the press that um, the president has given them a year. Um, from our side, we... You know, we await the, the investigation. We will assist in every way possible. It is only in our members' interest that um, the, the master's offices are aligned and, and are working properly. But what, you know, what they will find, you and I can only speculate.
0: Rene Becker, and uh, another good move forward for South Africa with an investigation into problems in another organ of state. You wonder when it's all going to end but don't forget we've had 10 wasted, well nine wasted years. We'll be talking to a former colleague of mine, Kathy Curry, in just a moment. She has been the victim of an incredible crime uh, by the Department of Agriculture. It's a fascinating story and one that is going to keep you riveted. Well, Kathy Currie and I were colleagues 30 years ago. I remember her as being extremely professional, fastidious, focused, uh, no nonsense. And I'm sure she's continued that into her life subsequent to that. Kathy, what have you been doing in the last
5: 30 years? Well, I've spent time with my family business. My dad started the company in 1970, and the name of the company is Groenfuhr Products. We're based in Midland. Um, he unfortunately passed away um, in 2002, and for the last 18 years, my mother, my sister and I have been running the company with some very good staff.
0: A mm, little bit of girl power then, mother, sister and yourself, and, uh, and how's uh, Groenfuhr Products been going?
5: It's been going nicely. Animal feed is um, a tough market to be in, and you have to really, really do um, your utmost all the time quality-wise. It is a very competitive market. And in 2011, I actually read something that made me realize this was a, a concept that didn't exist in South Africa that could really benefit any horse owner any cattle owner, anybody with sheep and goats. And what it was, it was an email from um, an American overseas uh, company called thehorse.com. And they were talking about research um, by the University of Minnesota um, regarding the savings that you could make on your fodder by using a round bale feeder. And this intrigued me. I did my research. There was nothing available in South Africa. So what we did was, together with a mechanical engineer partner, we sat down and brainstormed what we needed for South African conditions, understanding that on a South African plot or or small holding, you don't have um, a lot of complicated machinery. You don't have sophisticated back-end loaders, etc. So what we needed was something that you could use with minimal labor to actually load this roll. And we wanted it to be something that would save grass and then naturally money, as well as labor. And we, after a lot of research, a lot of time and a lot of money, we came up with a, a really, really great concept. And we patented and design protected it.
0: And it's called the SA Grass Roll Saver, um, clearly for, for horse, horse feeding.
5: Um, It's for feeding horses but also for feeding cattle and we have another model that stands a bit lower which is ideal for sheep and goats. And we called it the South African role saver because we are a patriotic family and we knew that this had export potential and we were very, very proud of it.
0: And that's the nice part of the story. The not-so-nice part of the story begins a couple of years ago when you were asked to quote on providing 18 of these feeders to the Seiko Nature Reserve. Tell us the story from there.
5: It, it actually started in, in March 2017. We were in the middle of a, another drought, which happens so often in South Africa. And we, we had a bit of a windfall um, in terms of grass rolls, and we paid it forward by donating. Uh, it was about 265. 1, two meter aeroglossus rolls to the Gauteng Department of Agriculture. When they came out, the officials, um, we showed them the SA glass roll favor because we knew it would benefit their farmers. And they said they were interested. We asked if we could do a presentation, but nothing came of it. We gave them our flyers. We showed them our board that said this is a patented and design-protected product. We gave them copies of um, the smallholder magazine, which is a fantastic agricultural magazine in the country, and they said they'd get back to us, but they didn't. But when we got the requests for quotes, uh, we were happy to quote the tender entrepreneurs, not a problem. The problem was we didn't get an order, and we noticed that the quantities were increased from 12 to 18. We also noticed that a photo had been taken off our website of the roll saver and used as part of the request for a quote. Hmm. We were disappointed not to get the order. We were thinking, could it have been a budgetary problem? But in March last year, uh, I asked if my family would company me, and we knew that it was destined for Sakerboss Runt Nature Reserve near Heidelberg. And I decided, well, we love hiking anyway, and we love going on trails, so we'll do a trail at Sakerboss Runt, and just have a look. And to my huge shock, and real distress, and real disappointment, I actually found counterfeit favors.
0: So someone had taken your product... Uh, made it um, or counterfeited it and then sold it on to the Department of, of Agriculture. What what did you do about this once you saw it?
5: We took photos and, you know, the photos proved conclusively the locale. Nobody can dispute it. Then we, we employed a, a patent litigating lawyer and... You know, his advice all the time has been try and solve things effectively, and we've really done our best in that regard. So the first thing we did was we, after oh, getting um, a request for another quote for safeable Abortion, for 12 role savers, this was in May, um, we sent her the quote stipulating that she must understand that this is a patented and design-protected Product. But we also noticed that, again, there was something highly illegal in the request for quotation because the wording actually invited people to infringe on the patent. They had another photo of our website and had said that um, the order must comply with this patent, inviting people to actually produce the counterfeits. So then we got the lawyer to send a letter to the lady at Sakerbos who'd asked for the quote, explaining that this was not on, this. she couldn't continue to quote, using the word comply. She wrote back to us and said it had not been her intention to infringe. She had wanted to get the genuine article. So we thought, well, this is something good. Um, let's have a meeting with her, which we did. In the meeting, she admitted twice that they had they had counterfeit substandard products, and she had really wanted to get it from us this time. When I saw the counterfeit, I said to her, yeah, I can believe it because then you wouldn't have had problems, and she agreed. And I said, you wouldn't have had them rusting because they're not hot but galvanized the way our product is. They're just painted. And quite frankly, from the shortcuts that were taken, I think the account of it is actually dangerous. Lots of sharp edges, etc. So after meeting with Liesl, she said she would get her bosses to call us back. And um, that, that was a while ago it was on the 11th of September, we heard nothing from them. When we went to Nose Week to try and get an investigative person to to follow up, the very day after she sent some emails, on the 8th of October, we got a response signed by the head of the Housing Agriculture Department, Matilda Gazella, to say that as they'd withdrawn the request for quote. In their mind, the matter had been settled. Our lawyers wrote back to them and said, well, actually, no. Going back to the letter of demand which we sent to you in July, we are asking you once again to give us the full details of the person who provided you with the infringing products to deliver these up to us and within 30 days of the date to pay to our clients the sum of 190,800 rand for the 18 infringing copies manufactured by a supplier other than our clients. Then we heard nothing. So we left it was in October.
0: They're protecting the, the counterfeiter, in other words. They're not prepared They it. are protecting
5: mm. the supplier without a doubt. And that was borne out again when we again requested another meeting in Johannesburg on the 18th of November. We met with several Departments of Agriculture officials, among them two lawyers. Um, And again, we asked them very straightforwardly who made them, and we were stonewalled. So clearly they are protecting somebody close to the department in terms of the maker of these units.
0: Kathy Curry from uh, the uh, family business, Grunfoor. I love talking to people like Kathy, not just because she's an ex-colleague, and I, as you can hear, she's got her facts all in a row, but because it is often the bad actors uh, who prey on smaller businesses that get away with absolute murder. We hope that in this case it's going to be something very different. And then, in fact, um, Cathy and her lawyers will eventually be able to get these state officials to, first of all, give up the name of the counterfeiters and, secondly, to do the right thing and reimburse them. Well, as promised, Michael Charton joins us now, the inventor of My Father's Coat. Now, if you haven't seen his production of My Father's Coat, which I had the privilege of seeing in London, uh, and, uh, well, many people have seen it, it really is a, a an evening to remember. Michael, how, how many of those... Uh, talks have you given now on that?
6: Um, Alec, I think it's at about 320 performances.
0: Wow. And how do you keep, uh, (laughs) we're going to talk books in a minute, but how do you keep enthused uh, if you've done so many?
6: Yeah, look, on the one hand, um, it's not a story which is set in stone. So I I keep trying to improve it, try and find better balance and to try and find ways to say things more efficiently. Um, but also, you know, once I'm up on stage, it's a strange old thing. But adrenaline takes over. I mean, I, I get to half time and um, I, I sort of I sort of re-wake up again. It to me, it feels like ten minutes. But you know, so I, it's just adrenaline when I'm up there. And you know, I think anyone who's been on stage a bit um, will understand that kind of adrenaline. And um, yeah, so it, it comes with a with a buzz of its own. So I actually, yeah, I still, I still enjoy telling the story, and um, I get quite a nice buzz out of it still.
0: Well, for the audience, uh, I can tell you from personal experience, it also feels like ten minutes. It absolutely flies. But we're here to talk about books, uh, and I, a member of the business community. When I asked who we should be talking to, who who they know is is our uh, are, are avid book readers, your name came up. And I, I would imagine from your side that that you do read history a lot, given that that's your passion. What what book are you currently reading?
6: So I was actually, I was in London uh, last week, and I, I was recommended to go to, of all places, Harrods apparently had a, you know, a big bookstore, so I, I went up there and um, I picked out a book called The Perils of Perception um, by a guy called Bobby Duffy. And um, basically, I mean, it's an interesting book. It's quite a short book, um, but it's uh, really, it's about human misperception. And um, this is sort of a concept which is not unrelated to history at all. And I think you'll remember from My Father's Coat. Certainly the way I eventually got my head around the South African story was by layering it with the biases that peoples of South Africa have carried with them, um, often very negative. But until I'd gone that route, I really found it difficult to understand. So, so I've developed an interest in, in human biases and why humans think the way they do and what, sort of, what, what drives that, but I've never really been able to articulate that so this book i was hoping could sort of close a few of those gaps and at least enable me to sort of understand why we carry these biases and why sometimes they seem to stick with us and we can't sort of get rid of them as easy as one might think and you know facts as it turns out are not hugely effective in, in redirecting our thoughts and um so that was the sort of reason why i, I picked it up mm-hmm. and um yeah it's been i mean it's it's just very interesting to see and how you humans. Have certain weaknesses which have at times in our evolution really helped us forward. But, you know, in in a modern world where information is so prevalent, um, you know, this book really highlights how humans tend to be attracted to information which they already believe to be true, um, how we tend to look for the negative. Um, So we we sort of instinctively become pessimistic about the information we're fed. And and so these kind of elements come through. This this, um, this researcher did did 100,000 interviews. Uh, over 40 countries, and then uh, spoke, asked people questions about politics and money and health, the things that we sort of day-to-day have opinions on. And then he sort of, he studied those variances between what statistics tell us the answers are and what humans uh, and these populations and countries, what they thought. And there yeah, are so some fascinating sort of insights came out of that.
0: But was South Africa in there?
6: Yes, yeah, so South Africa was um, was one of the. There were 40 countries, one of them was South Africa. <laughs> And I mean, if it was a sort of contest, uh, you know, the, the bad news is that we, we performed very badly and that our misperceptions were um, regarded as the worst out of all these 40 countries. Mm. So we came out, uh, in other words, our opinions on things like teenage pregnancies all the way through to inequality, uh, our, our views were the furthest away from reality. And, uh, and perhaps scarily, along with that, we were also deeply pessimistic. So mm. our views on things like crime, were as far away from the truth as sort of you know, any other country, um, yeah, we, and, and always thinking that it was worse than it is. Why, Michael?
0: So, why do we score so badly in, in in something like this? Perceptions, which you'd think, well, it, it can't be that different from country to country.
6: Yeah, I mean, I, sort of trying to work out exactly why each country would be different is not something I've got into yet, or he certainly hasn't given me that clarity on it. Um, and I do seem to remember reading one sort of paragraph where education actually wasn't hugely, um, wasn't a great correlation. Um, but I suspect that South Africa, you know, because of its troubled past, you know, those those elements of misperception that I mentioned, those tendencies towards bias are particularly heightened in that we do tend to look for the negative. And one of the other elements that we do is we tend to think in, in groups. So we, we look to the majority of the people around us for those opinions, whether or right, whether or not that they are correct. Um, you know, one of the uh, sort of uh, from a financial perspective, the one example he gave was that people in, in, uh, generally save less than they should for the future. And one of the reasons why people are happy to do that is that they believe, rightly or wrongly, that the people around them are also also not saving. So, so it's very. It's really, he looks into the human brain, in a sense, we instinctively believe that we are rational beings and we make decisions rationally. But um, what this book and what these surveys draw out is that, you know, the way we perceive information is is not. And we we look for emotional elements uh, and we look for information which already ties to sort of a broad understanding of how we see the world.
0: Lots of work to be done by those who communicate for a living. But uh, maybe share another book, something that you've recently read that uh, you would recommend.
6: So the the book I I got a huge amount out of last year was – uh, it's, it's a serious epic of a book, but it's called the, A History of the American People by Paul Johnson. Uh, he's quite a conservative writer, but he talks to the story of the United States. And uh, sort of his opening paragraph is something like, um, no story in the history of hum- humankind has so many lessons to teach us. Um, you know, not necessarily from a positive perspective, but uh, in fact, there's one quote that he uses uh, it's from Churchill, who said, again, I might get this slightly wrong, but um, along the lines of um, Americans always do the right thing, but not before exhausting every alternative. And uh, so, you know, what we've got is this sort of relatively blank canvas where Europeans moved across the United States with a small government. Uh, the British didn't really care for North America because it didn't have the, easy, the cash crops like sugar or anything like that. So they let them do their own thing and almost just sent them over there for a couple of hundred years and didn't worry too much about them. And, and in the background, quietly, we see this experiment taking place whereby you've got a relatively blank canvas and you've got small governments, almost zero taxation. And underlying this slowly, we see this huge sort of growth and spiral and, and just this um, sort of emphasis about how humans are so powerful when we are able to collaborate freely and what kind of things that we were able to produce in terms of uh, when we are, when we do have a smaller government than a bigger one, and um, yeah, to me it was, it really was a fascinating story. And then all the elements that come through, many of the elements that come through, uh, I just I couldn't help seeing our own story in theirs, um, in the different economies that arose. You know, the diamonds and the gold in South Africa were very, very similar in terms of socially and politically to what happened in the American Deep South with, with tobacco and then cotton. Um, and so I, I got stuck into this book to an extent. I, I was seriously passionate about each page. And um, it's not an easy read in terms of uh, recommending it. And it is a long book. It's a big book. Um, but if you've got a little bit of time and you want uh, a story which gives you incredible human insights, I, I found this book to be unbelievably insightful.
0: Michael, have you read other Paul Johnson books?
6: I actually haven't. I, I've got a few on my shelf which I haven't got to. I think one was called The Creators. I, I, I do want to read more now. Um, uh, but i haven 't got to them yet
0: i 'm a huge fan of his, uh, and right from uh, an offshore the offshore Islanders, which is the the history of the British Isles, which is very insightful as well through to in search of God, he actually wrote a book where he scientifically had a look at whether or not there was a god oh, and, well, uh, i wow. i won 't do a spoiler on that one but uh, there've been many others that the uh, history of the jews which is also an amazing book uh, but this one too the uh, history of the american people i must agree i think it is it's probably his biggest book of the whole lot um or the longest but also one of those one of those authors that just every page is fascinating it somehow manages to pack so much into it and he's still alive i was hoping to be able to interview him when i was in the uk but yeah. I think he's deep into his 90s and, and uh, didn't get the opportunity to actually do, to have that. But, wow, he's made a big contribution. To, yeah, no, it, was, it was already.
6: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he's, he's had a reasonably conservative reputation. And yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it, to me, it's a very important read, whether or not, you know, it, it probably should be balanced by you know, other, other, other reads as well. But certainly, his, his, to your point, each page seems to bring out a story which you really can feel the relevance of it.
0: Michael Charton, uh, thank you very much for your contribution today. And nice to see that we share a, a love for one of the great historians of our modern era, Paul Johnson, a, a British historian who's written a library of books just about. Uh, most of them, every single one of them that I've read, uh, has resonated in one way or another. He's also got uh, one where he, he writes about the intellectuals, um, which was a little bit caustic, on the those who are termed to be intellectuals But uh, this one that Michael has recommended uh, Certainly A History of the American People Well worth picking up It is a tome it, It's hundreds of pages I how long in, in total But it is uh, one of those investments That as you heard from him um, Really is worthwhile Well that's, uh, that's our show for this week I'm uh, very pleased that you could have been with us And uh, well if you... Like to make a date. We are on air at noon on a Monday. We stream live, but of course, this is uh, there's uh, exponentially more people listen to the, the podcast of the show because that's the way radio is going or audio is going. It's it's all about consumption on demand. Thanks for being with us. Until the next time, cheerio.